This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is February 27th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, my name is Stephen Mines. I was at Hofstra Radio officially from January 1970 to June 1973. Did you have any titles or positions at the radio station? Many. I was the uh, remote chief. I was the news operations director. I was the director of religious affairs. Um, probably many others. We were very big on titles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember any of the shows or programs that you hosted or worked on? I hosted a show called uh, the Gothic Dyspeptic Musical Review, which was uh, Bad Music and Blather. And I did... Um, a series of four interviews after the election in 1972 with the heads of the Republican, Democratic, uh, liberal, and conservative parties, mm-hmm. a thousand news stories. Um, I recorded hundreds and hundreds of programs uh, outside the studios Um for example, we did Linner's lineup, which was with the uh, basketball coach, Coach Linner, hmm. and we would record a uh, fifteen minutes or half an hour with him that we would play just before uh, we broadcast whatever sports ball game it was. Um, probably the best thing I ever recorded, the best sounding thing, the thing that required no editing at all, never saw the light of day. Hmm. <laughs> I recorded. Um, Oscar Brand, the famous folk singer, in, uh, I don't even remember the name of the building, but it was one of the buildings on California Avenue, had a uh, lecture hall that had magnificent acoustics, and I recorded him with one microphone, uh, and I, into uh, a full track uh, Ampex recorder, and I went up to him and you know, told him who I was and said, can you sign the release? He said, no, I can't sign the release. Uh, I said, well, you know, we'd like to record your your program, which is what I had already told them. Right. I said, no, no, I'm in the union. They won't let me sign the release. You can record it. I don't mind. I'm not going to stop you, but I can't sign a release. So um, did the recording. It was uh, – the quality was just astounding. Uh-huh. Because it was a very very high quality microphone, and the uh, the old Ampex six hundreds, I think it was a six hundred one, uh, just a great great sounding machine. Um, and uh, I, since we couldn't use it, um, I think my friend borrowed it and told me how great it sounded, and then never remembered to give it back. So oh, it's, no. it's gone to the world. Oh, no. Oh, what a shame. That's a um, I wasn't uh, particularly happy about it. No. Um, you know, so, so you know, I, I did everything. Um, uh, you know, it was, if you wanted something to do, you could always find something to do. Hmm. So, uh, this is a two-part question and answer it however it makes sense to you, but I'm always curious what brought 
people to the station in the first place? And then for those of us who weren't there at the same time, what was the station like? Do you remember who you met or who might have been around at the time, what it looked like, where it was, so on and so forth? Uh, well, I had always been interested in radio. When I was a sophomore in high school, one of my friends worked at the CW Post radio station, WCWP. Mm-hmm. So I was aware that there was a thing called college radio from him. And I think he and I also discussed the fact that, oh, Hostra also has a radio station. Um, so, I mean, I always wanted to do college radio. Uh, I initially went to school in Ohio where there was zero opportunity to do uh, college radio. Um, So I didn't stay there long. And uh, I guess in the second semester of my freshman year, I transferred to Hofstra. It was was pretty, pretty competitive. I think I had to have a pulse (laughs) and somebody had to sign a check. Uh, and, um, but I, I had actually been down to, uh, WVHC, uh, you know, in my high school years, uh, more than once and in, in my high school years and also in my years at the station, we were in the basement of the little theater, Mm -hmm. which was, um, I, I like to describe it as a fetid hole. (laughs) Um, the story that I have heard over the years and it has evolved and I didn't know a lot of this initially when I was at the station is that that space wasn't really supposed to be occupied by people. And it certainly wasn't supposed to be a radio station. And when nobody was looking, they, they snuck in and built the radio station. Um, which is, is, is plausible to me. If, if you saw how elegant the space was, you could believe it. Well, well um, not to interrupt, but I've, I've heard other conversations you've had, um, and I've spoken to some other folks who were there about the same time. Why in particular was there not supposed to be a station in the basement of Little Theater? I think there are specific reasons, right? Um, well, I don't, th- I don't think it was safe. There was only one door in or out, uh-huh. and and there was a narrow hallway that had four rooms or three rooms and a big closet, depending on how you wanted to describe it. (laughs) And in the event of a fire, it would have been a death trap. Um, But aside from that, it was pretty good. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a space that was probably best used for storage. That was, it was probably envisioned that it would be used for storage and I don't, I don't know. I know the door is still there, but I don't know what's behind it. I suspect it may be used for storage now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they ever, what they ever did with that. But so, so I want to go back. You mentioned that during your high school days, you had been to WVHC. What brought you down there at that time? Well, I, uh, my, I had. My friend who worked at WCWP always spoke about it. And then I had a fr- another friend in high school. Uh, I had a very good friend who used to um, listen to it all the time. Hmm. Uh, uh, ironically, he he identified, self-identified, I think is what the young people call it. He self-identified as a conservative, 
but um, he was always listening to, uh, uh, you know, protest music. And you remember that this is uh, during the Vietnam War. I, re- I remember in particular, I don't remember which folk singer did it, but there was a, a song, uh, Lyndon Johnson Told the Nation, uh, you know, about uh, the slippery slope we were following uh, in Vietnam. And I can remember he would actually sing it sometimes, but he heard that on WVHC. Um, at some point, I want to say 1968-ish, the university decided to defund the radio station, mm-hmm. and there were demonstrations at WVHC. So I went down uh, and actually participated in one of those demonstrations while I was a high school student. Ironically, it, it, it was very rare to have demonstrations at Hofstra at that time, notwithstanding the fact that it was during the Vietnam War. This all changed dramatically, and I mean very dramatically, in uh, I believe it was May of 1970 hmm. when uh, some students got shot by the National Guard at Kent State. Right. And then the entire, um, the entire campus became one big demonstration. Um, as it applies to WVHC, I remember seeing people from WVHC uh, covering the demonstrations. And this was, this was um, I'd already started at the station, but at, at that point I was only what we called an engineer, which really wasn't an engineer at all. Um, more like a technician or a board operator, but I I wasn't, I wasn't yet doing the other stuff. I was just doing, um, what we, uh, misidentified as engineering. Um, so, and then actually at some point I want to, I want to say, um, not long after that, maybe, maybe the, the same, year, maybe the year after, there was a giant march on Washington, and WVHC sent a bunch of people. Again, I wasn't really involved at that time, but I remember in particular, Todd Schwartz was reporting from in the, in the middle of some, uh, you know, quite a large demonstration, and uh, he uttered the immortal words, there's been a sudden change in the mood of the crowd. Um, but again, that, that was at a point where I still was, was, uh, reluctant to get involved, uh, in the other stuff, which I was by the the first full year I was there, I was doing. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, I don't know how much of this you can speak to, but, but covering that protest, uh, today it's a given that, you know, there'd be phones and, and, and all sorts of digital equipment. What were the recording on and how are they transmitting getting the information back to the radio station what we recorded news on almost exclusively were were cassette recorders Mm -hmm. and although the standard in the radio news industry at that time was sony's we had norel what are called norelco carry quarters which were um very rudimentary but very high quality cassette recorders and if you plugged a real broadcast microphone into them they uh they sounded just great 
And um, what we would frequently do is record something on that, uh, transfer it to quarter-inch tape, and then edit it on quarter-inch tape. Hmm. Uh, in terms in terms of getting the stuff back to the studio, there was a thing they called the payphone. Well, yeah, that's that's where I thought you were going to go, and I'm just trying to picture um, that that sort of scene where I imagine someone's holding the phone and someone's holding a tape recorder, and they're doing their best to uh, get the speaker as close to the uh, to the phone as possible. Well, here's a fun fact that's um, probably of interest only to me. Um, sure, the uh, microphone manufacturer made a device that was essentially just a microphone mounted in a rubber cup. And the rubber cup, it was more like a rubber disc. It was exactly the size of a standard telephone handset microphone. And there was a little rubber band. So you could actually attach the this, this speaker. I believe I called that a microphone. It's a speaker. Mm. You would attach the speaker uh, to the payphone and essentially play back the audio through the speaker into the microphone of the payphone. Um, wow, that's neat. That's cool. I didn't. I didn't realize that that would would have been the state of technology at the time. But I figured it involved a a payphone or an office phone somewhere. Well, it was not uncommon if you were out in the field somewhere to take apart uh, a telephone and use alligator clips to mm-hmm. uh, send the output of the tape recorder into the phone. I've broken a few phones trying to do that. I'm sure the statute of limitations is is up on that. We can only hope. And (laughs) there were actually places. I remember visiting the National Press Club, uh, which was in the Daily Planet building, um, which is otherwise known as the Daily News building. Right. Uh, And they actually had, I'm wrong, it was in a hotel next to the Daily Planet building. They actually had a payphone, and someone considerately at the bottom of the payphone had left a pair of metal uh, pins so that you could attach your alligator clips to the metal pins without taking the payphone apart. I guess that that was a concession to the whatever radio people attended events at the National Press Club. So, so you made this uh, sort of comparison or distinction between being an engineer and being a technician, being a board operator. Um, as you're getting started at the radio station at Hofstra, did you did you know about this stuff? Did someone show you, or was it just we're going to oh, figure it out as we go? I'd 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 run a board badly at um, uh, while I was hanging out with my friend at WCWP. I had my uh, third class radio telephone license with broadcast endorsement, right. which I got when I was 14 years old. So, uh, I mean, I was just chomping at the bit to do this stuff. And, um, after being denied at the first place I went to college, uh, it was really, uh, it was a dream come true to be able to do it, uh, where I was going to college. Right. So, so who were some of the people that were already there at the station when, when you showed up? You mentioned a few names, but is that same? They were giants. They were all giants. (laughs) 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 Um, Many of them in the, the Hofstra radio uh, hall of fame. Um, Steve Epstein, John DeBella, uh, Tom Curley, Howard Liberman, David Levy, Todd Schwartz, uh, 
my very dear friend, Kevin Riley, who is no longer with us. Hmm. Um, you know, it was like a cult. You got, you got drawn in and, um, some, some people stayed and some didn't. Right. So about how many people do you think were, were working there at the station in, in those early days for you? Was it a couple dozen maybe? I was going to guess 30 to 50. Okay. That, that may be ambitious. Remember there were people who would be the staff announcer and they would come in for two hours and they would read PSAs. Mm-hmm. So there were, there were a lot of people. Uh, one of the good things about not paying people is that you can really have a lot of different people doing different jobs. So um, uh, th- there were there were people who who their entire involvement was their two hour shift. Uh, on whatever day they were doing it once a week. Hmm. Hmm. Um, in terms of getting uh, familiar with things, obviously you had your, your FCC license walking in the door. That must have been uh, fairly attractive to, to the folks there. But were, were there classes, were there instruction about being on the air, about reading the PSAs or news, or was it just, again, figure it out as you go along? There there was, um, I well... Someone, someone did have to, I knew how to, I vaguely knew how to operate a board, but somebody had to show me where everything was and how things turned on and off. And I don't remember who did that. I did go to announcing classes with Jeffrey Krause, which was kind of peculiar. Um, I have what, uh, some people hear and some people don't hear, but I have a speech impediment called the glottal L mm-hmm. and Jeffrey was not a fan of this. And, um, I don't know, somehow I got past him. I think I went around him. <laughs> were, were these, were these university courses or was it just, uh, you're going to sit down with this guy and he's going to help you out? No, that was, Oh, you want to be on the radio? You have to go to the announcing course. And it was, it was three or four people at once. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, well, well, depending on on the era, there were there were either more or less rules, and I think I think that's sort of a, a sliding curve for things. So so you would have had to attend, a, I guess, a couple of weeks for this course before someone gave you the the, the nod that you were okay to be on the air. I th- I think that someone else with a title who was the chief announcer okay. had to approve you, which is probably how I got on the air because if Jeffrey Krause had to approve me, I would have probably never gotten on the air. Can you just um, des- can you describe meeting Jeff at first? Because we we understand a lot of people were rather intimidated by him or not quite sure what to make of him. What was your first? Uh, I, I don't remember initially meeting him. I remember. I remember being around him. We used to have an office in the basement of Memorial Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the basement is sort of the continuation of a theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were no walls or anything. So it was, it was not unlike the, the office in, at WKRP where everyone was in one big room and there were a lot of desks. And Jeffrey's desk was, of course, in the middle. And um, I remember him always being there or frequently being there and being sort of uh, scary and um, 
I guess scary was the best word. Mm. And that, that quickly morphed into someone who we just delighted in tormenting. <laughs> um, uh, it, one of my favorite things, of course, was to sit at Jeffrey's desk when he wasn't there. And he would, of course, come in. Well, I shouldn't say, of course, because how could you know this? Uh, he would come in and, and uh, the first thing he says, get away from my desk mm-hmm. or get out of my chair. Here's something that's completely out of left field, but in the upper right-hand corner of Jeffrey's desk was a little box. Um, I don't know otherwise how to uh, describe it. And if you opened that box, in that box was a microphone, and it was a Norelco D24E. And I loved that microphone. I loved that microphone so much. And from time to time, I would pull something like, Jeffrey, I have to go record a news story and there are no microphones. Can I have the microphone in your desk? And he would say, no, you, you, you can't ever touch that. That belongs to Gary Armstrong. Hmm. Uh, and I never, un- I never saw it used. I never understood why it was there. And um, 40 years later, I asked Gary Armstrong about it, and he had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> but I, I'm proud to say I now own uh, a version of that microphone. Uh, it's one of my uh, uh, most treasured uh, collectibles. Hmm. Um, it sounds a little bit lacking in, in the bottom end. But uh, otherwise, it sounds really good. It sounds very bright. And th- those were used for some of the Beatles' first uh, performances on Ed Sullivan. Wow. Uh, very uh, high-end uh, microphone at the time. And uh, that was in Jeffrey's desk. I, I never forgot that. Hmm. I've forgotten the names of my siblings, but I have never forgotten that. <laughs> I'll I'll just leave that where that is. Um, do you remember getting on the air the first time, either being behind the board or announcing? Behind the board was anticlimactic. I mean, I um, I sat down. I, mean, I was a little nervous. I knew how everything worked, and it just you know, full speed ahead. Um, I don't really remember my first time talking on the radio, as uh, I believe the professionals call it. Um, I, I actually have no recollection of that at all. Hmm. Uh, do you remember any of the early news stories you worked on? Because you, you said that was, that's a big so many. Yeah. yeah. So many. I remember going with, with Todd Schwartz, who was the news director when the, I believe it was the state of New York. It might've been, most probably the federal government handed over the old uh, Falais mansion in Sands Point. So, um, you know, we, sh- we showed up with a reel-to-reel tape recorder and, you know, 400 feet of extension cord and uh, a microphone floor stand and, you know, more than anyone would ever bring to cover something like that. Uh and I remember we, we got to wander around in the uh, in the old mansion. One of the nice things was that in 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 those times the regular Nassau County Press Corps was pretty cordial to us, and some of the 
the powers that be were pretty cordial to us. Like we always got cooperation from the town of Hempstead or from Nassau County. Um, we were always treated well. Well, for example, by the Nassau County Republicans, um, I got Joe Marciata to sit down and talk to me for half an hour, which wow. uh, was 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 probably. Um, and I I believe, incidentally, that although that was broadcast, I believe that he and I were the only people who ever heard it. Um, so I I remember that some some of the news stories were just more fun. Um, I particularly liked. Um, Oh, there were so many. Uh, one of the favorite things I did was um, I flew to Fort Dix on a Chinook helicopter with the Hostra ROTC. Wow. Um, what a thrill that was. Um, and I was like pretty much a long-haired hippie at the time. Um, but I did it. It was fun. I actually um, uh, became a friend of the colonel from the ROTC and, and actually went and hung out with him a few times. It was a, kind of a surprise. Um, w- we had one of those days when nothing's going on, go and find a story. Mm-hmm. And um, the circus was coming to Island Garden. Now, you may not even know what Island Garden is. Mm. Before the Nassau Coliseum, there was the Island Garden. The Island Garden was an arena in West Hempstead. And I, I would guess it sat maybe 5,000 people. Uh, and the circus would come there every year. And um, so I show up at the circus. I, you know, I probably called and spoke to someone ahead of time. And I'm speaking to the, the guy at the circus whose job it is to speak to local reporters. And he says, oh, uh, let me introduce you to Hugo Zucchini. Hugo Zucchini was, um, and that's spelled Z-A-C-C-H-I-N-I, not like the uh, vegetable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hugo Zucchini was the first man to be shot out of a cannon. <laughs> and um, so I, I interviewed him, and he was in his early 70s at the time. Uh, this was a couple of years before his death. And I asked him, have you ever had any accidents and he said, well, uh, I've had a few, but so far, no fatal ones. <laughs> so that that was the big Hugo Zucchini story. Um, I went to the, uh, with a woman named Barbara Imold, we went to the first event at the Nassau Coliseum, which was a Nets game, where, by the way, they were using the scoreboard that the Nets used to use at Island Garden because everything is connected. Uh-huh. Uh, so we used to have a WVHC press pass. Uh, every county would issue press passes, and normally it would have the name of the person. We had one press pass, and it just said WVHC on it. And so I had used that to kind of try to talk my way into covering the first night of the Nassau Coliseum. And somehow I did talk my way into the building. And, um, it was, uh, it was pretty chaotic. Uh, half the seats weren't in. Wow. Um, it was, it was, uh, it was interesting. I don't think it got better over the years. So they opened it up, but it wasn't, it wasn't finished yet. 
It was, it was, well, it was finished enough that they had a basketball game, but they, the scoreboard was not yet ready. So they took the scoreboard from the Island Garden and a lot of the seats weren't in. Well, my, the first thing that came to mind was what was the, you know, did, was it a sellout? I guess, I guess how many people were there? Um, I, I don't remember it. I, I don't remember se- seeming to be seeming to be particularly, um, uh, full. Right. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what, what kind of a crowd there was. I don't know how they sold the tickets. Um, but basically once we got into the building is just go find a seat and there was no shortage of empty seats. Right. Wow. So, so it seems like once you actually got to Hofstra and got in the building, uh, would it be fair to say you were, you were pretty comfortable early on or did it take a little while to realize this is where you were going to spend a lot of time for the next few years? Um, I really knew it was where I was going to spend a lot of time for the next few years. Um, it was a while before I got comfortable with the various personalities. So between, uh, I think in June of 1970, the old guard was out and, uh, uh, the new guard was in and I was much more comfortable with the new guard, um, I don't remember who was what at what particular time, but the the radio station apparatchiks in my day were uh, Tom Curley, mm-hmm. uh, Frank Grunstein, Kit Hunt. Um, they they were the three that immediately come to mind, uh, and there were others. But um, in ad- in addition to being a place to learn useful skills like how to edit audio tape with a razor blade, um, you learned good people skills. You, you, you learned how to deal with people as a result of that. And of course, one of the best teachers of that was Jeff Krause, who used to finagle all kinds of things from all kinds of people at the university because he had such a ridiculous paltry budget. Mm-hmm. Um, just, uh, it just recurred to me to, to come back to this. Um, you said earlier that there was an office in Memorial Hall while the studios were in the little theater. Where was the office, and and could you describe that a little bit? It was in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it wasn't as dank as the studio. Um, it was one big room with with tile floors and sort of uh, nondescript. Uh, standard issue office furniture, right. you know, the, the old gray office furniture, uh, a lot of manual typewriters. People would, um, usually someone there editing tape, um, which was fun and people running around. And, um, it was, it was pretty much almost as much a fraternity as it was a radio station. Mm-hmm. Except you had all these, you know, nineteen-year-old kids with official titles. Um, I just thought of another title I had. I was the promotions manager. And or, what, what did that involve? I maybe it was the public relations director. Um, it it entailed doing the um, uh, the program guide 
among other things. Okay. And I, I remember at one point going with a woman named Dale Kagan. Uh, we went to the uh, city room at Newsday in Garden City to chat up whoever was. They actually had a radio uh, person, a person who wrote on radio. And I, I remember we went to chat that person up and see if we could get some uh, favorable publicity out of it. Did that work out? It, uh, who remembers? <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it, it pretty much though looked like Lou Grant. Uh, if it, well, yep, that's um, probably something that very few people will remember now. Um, unless as time goes on. Um, obviously this, the, the, the radio station came to mean a great deal to you. And I, I love the story about the microphone and that, that, that you've got your own, version of it now, but can you put yourself back in your shoes at, I, I guess, about 18 years old as you're a transfer student walking in? And you, I think you've alluded to some of this, but at that moment, as you're walking in, as you're getting involved, what did you want Hofstra Radio to be in your life? Well, what a hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I want, I wanted to play with the toys, the stuff. I mean, I, I, I always loved audio stuff. Um, and, and this was professional audio gear. I'd never really had an opportunity to work with professional audio gear. So in, in the beginning, it was the opportunity to, you know, work with professional audio gear. Mm-hmm. And of course it, it, it became more than that as time went on. Right. Yeah, I, I mean the the it's it seemed like you definitely had a sense of like you said working with the gear and the the technical aspects of it, and then uh, it seemed like the news and the sports uh, portion of the of the job or the uh, environment became a main part of what you were doing down there at the station. But it was that that wasn't something that you necessarily had in mind. You were just like, I want, like you said, I want the stuff. I want the toys. Well, when when you're 18, you have a limited amount of stuff in mind. Right. So um, it it did morph into more than just playing with the audio equipment. Hmm. Well, uh, Stevie, this was this was fantastic. I I love these stories, and I I know that you have a lot more. I'm working on another round of questions, and uh, I'd I'd be real grateful if we could do this again another time. Well, I'm glad. I look forward to hearing it.